LSR presents Bright Club Radio Hour. Good afternoon, Leeds. My name is Kyle, and for this hour, I'll be bringing you something completely different, academic stand-up. Yes, it is brilliant, nerdy people getting their funnies on, but it's a little more than that. It's science communication with a twist. You'll hear academics being honest about their own areas of research, giving you a little something to laugh about this lunch hour. And hopefully you'll even learn something totally new. You know what? I'll just let you guys figure this one out. Here is Manesh Karavilla of St. Andrews University performing Academic Sound of Conde at the Fringe. You're listening to Bright Club Radio Hour on Leeds Student Radio. Tonight I want to do something for you that is really simple. I'm just going to do one song about my research. That's it, okay? And the reason I thought I'd do a song for Bright Club is because typically if you're a musician, the last thing you want your audience to do is to laugh during a performance. <laughs> and conversely, typically if you're a comedian, the last thing you want your audience to do is to stare back at you in silence. <laughs> so I thought a nice happy middle ground tonight, <laughs> given that 10 years on I'm a rubbish musician, Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, you can laugh at me. I'll think you're laughing at my jokes, and we can all go home happy. <laughs> it's actually been six years since I last wrote and performed one of my own songs. And uh, back then, it was a song I'd written about a girl uh, who was really special to me at the time. <laughs> and it was one of those over-the-top romantic songs that you write when you're younger. And I'd like to sing a bit of it for you tonight, just the bridge section, to give you a sample of how the rest of the set is going to go. <laughs> relationship ended badly, um, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but the thing is, right, when I wrote the song at the time, I was really impressed by the song itself. And I did something that I feel a lot of the guys in the room might be able to relate to, right? I sent her an email and I said, just want to let you know, you inspired me to write a song. Please find attached the lyrics and relevant chord progressions. <laughs> now, in hindsight, a very insensitive thing to do. I genuinely don't know how I expected her to sing along with just the chords. <laughs> I'm thinking an MP3 or possibly sheet music at the very least. Um, but you live and learn, right? Um, anyway, there's a reason I'm telling you the story. And it's because it's more than just a story. It's a memory. And it's not just any kind of memory. It's an episodic memory. Episodic memory, memory for events or episodes from our lives. Now, episodic memories have three very distinct components. You remember what happened, 
where it's happened and when it's happened. So for example, if in a couple of months, a friend of yours is thinking of attending a Bright Club event and they ask for your opinion, you'll think back to tonight. Where were you? The Edinburgh Fringe. When was this? Sometime in August. What happened? Well, there was this random Indian guy <laughs> speaking in an accent that was a bit hard to place, talking about his failed love life and trying to pass it off as research, right? <laughs> That's your episodic memory. That's very good. Give yourselves a round of applause. Ladies and gentlemen, well done. That's fantastic. The way you all just applauded yourselves for recalling a slightly racist and hurtful memory, <laughs> but an episodic one all the same, so kudos. Now, when I talk about memories, right, people often think of it as just one thing, but there are different kinds of memories. So for example, if I asked you to recommend a beer, you'd use semantic memory or memory for knowledge and facts to suggest a pale ale or a lager or a stout, you know, whatever. If I asked you to balance a football on your head, you'd use procedural memory or memory for how to do things. And if I asked you for directions to the nearest hospital, you'd use spatial memory or memory for navigation. But if I asked you about the time you were in hospital after a failed experiment at trying to balance a football on your head, while simultaneously attempting to down a pint of lager as quickly as you could to avoid being burnt by a piece of rolled up newspaper that had been set on fire and shoved up your bum. <laughs> that is an episodic memory. It's quite a story to tell the grandkids, right? Or a story about why you may never have kids, let alone grandkids. But, uh... So I guess the logical question is, why do we care about researching episodic memory? It turns out one of the big reasons is because it's thought to be the first kind of memory system to deteriorate in patients with Alzheimer's disease. And if you think about it, these memories, they define who we are. They give us our identity, they shape the choices we make, the personalities we have. And what's really hard to see someone suffering with this disease is this loss of identity. And it's especially hard if you know them because then your image of them in your head starts to deteriorate, which is a really sad thing to deal with. Now, I'm no stand-up comedy expert, but I'm guessing this is not the best mood to finish the set on. <laughs> so let's try something here right now. Let's collectively try and recall an episodic memory. So, think back to earlier tonight. Where were you? You haven't moved, you're still here. When was this? Five minutes ago. What happened? I delivered my first joke of the night, which was that I was gonna keep things simple and just do one song about my research. Still hasn't happened, right? <laughs> Typical academic. <laughs> Without further ado, I give you the episodic memory song. <laughs> episodic memories define who we are in this life.
memories of episodic episodes. <laughs> like the time your girlfriend left you for a postdoctoral fellow. <laughs> they say happy memories exist. That's just a bright club joke, right? <laughs> complicated, and two, my mom's going to be watching this. <laughs> Episodic memories are essential to have meaningful lives. Because nothing's more rewarding than remembering exactly where you were and what you were doing when you were a complete and utter failure. You're better off trying to research how to forget. That area is well-funded. Guinness and Sam McGill. Other beverages are also available. Right, so that was Manish Kurvilla, a postgrad in cognitive and behavioral neuroscience at St. Andrews, teaching us a little bit about our memory. What did you guys think? Yeah, yeah good. Pretty, pretty good, yeah. Um, so I'm joined in the studio by Rachel Fox, Irene Arada, and James Green, who are working with me to put together the Return to Bright Club leads in December. Hi, guys. Hi. Oh. Hi. Tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you got involved with Bright Club. Uh, yeah. Well, I run like the Student Society for Postgrads in the Chemistry Department, and Rachel came and spoke to me about Bright Club being like a format for researchers to like make their research accessible to a wider audience through comedy and asked if I would like to help put it on yeah. um so yeah um Rachel Fox yeah tell us a bit about yourself uh, so I'm a technician over in the chemistry department at the university um so I've, I came to the university from industry where I worked in R&D um and we, we were just like a few years ago um a networking group that I that I created with a few friends we thought we'd do something interesting with something Bright different. Club. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know you've performed for Bright Club in the past, haven't you? I have as yeah. well. So, um, yeah. Do you remember what that was like? Yeah, it was uh, pretty nerve-wracking presenting in front of some academics in York. But, uh, yeah, it was it was great to get some laughs. Right. So, um, for those of you guys that don't know, Bright Club is a national thing. It's all over the UK, and actually, it's international. It's all over um, it, everywhere else. We've got places. We've got Bright Club academic stand-up in Toulouse now. There's one in Australia. I think there's one in Brussels. Last time I yeah, yeah. checked it out. Yeah. Yeah. So that was interesting. And Irene. Hi. Yeah. Hi. So I hear you're hoping to. You're, to perform? Uh, yeah, I quite like making people laugh. Yeah. And uh, I used to be really bad at jokes and I got better over time. So, so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? So what's your background and how did you find out about Bright Club? Right, so um, I'm doing a PhD in chemistry in, in Leeds and I've found out that uh, it's something people don't really understand. 
especially chemistry is really complicated to explain to people. So I, th I thought it was quite a good challenge. And I used to be in the chemistry society with James as well. So yeah. I know what it's like to just having to organize that. So I volunteered, I sacrificed myself. So when did you guys first watch, see, in, encounter Bright Club? Uh, well, I only heard about it when Rachel came and asked me if I wanted to set it up. So literally only a few weeks ago, which I'm quite surprised I hadn't heard about it before since it is such a big thing. Yeah. Um, have you seen any videos? Yeah, yeah. There is like quite a lot on YouTube from like different cities around the UK which have filmed theirs. So I watched a few of them and they were all really good. What about you, Irene? When uh, was the first time you encountered... For me, for me, it's the same yeah. uh, from Rachel and then James doing a bit more advertising for it. And I just had a look at the videos and I thought, yeah, I can do that. I want to do that. Give Let's it try. a go. Let's yeah. go. Um, for me personally, I think I actually saw a live performance the first time that I encountered Bright Club. And it was just enlightening to see how academics can almost be cathartic on stage. You know, the way that we share different parts of our research, but not necessarily what most people tend to see not the things that get published not the way that you teach at university it's usually the things that they share on stage tend to be things that are going on inside their minds as they're researching yeah yeah i mean i think that the comedy can really break down the barriers for science and you know the technical topic the technical research areas you know it just um from my experience sometimes when you get science communicators it can often be academics talking to other academics but if you can bring that to a wider audience you know it helps people see how cool scientists are yeah so i actually got a chance to speak to the originator of bright club steve cross so steve cross was formerly the head of the public engagement unit at university college london which holds the technical rights to bright club as a franchise but the university college london has it as a creative commons license so everyone else can take up a little bit of Bright Club and take it the way that they they want to in whatever city they put it on. So it's really exciting. So this was a little bit from Steve about how Bright Club came to be. Bright Club is turning university academics into comedians. Bright Club actually goes back quite a few years, uh, maybe five and a half, maybe six, something like that, um, to quite a different um, way of thinking about science. So at the time I was Head of Public Engagement at University College London, uh, which I did for seven years in the end, and I had a public engagement steering group who said to me that normally universities are really good at talking to you until you're 18 and you decide which university to go to, and then unless you work or study at a university, you don't really hear from them again until you're in your 40s or your 50s and you start listening to Radio 4 and you start watching Horizon. Um, it's important to remember this is six years ago, so the world's very different now, and there's a whole bunch of interesting things of which Bright Club is one. And um, they asked me to come up with a thing that researchers could do themselves, so not something that would take your story about your research and someone else would then tell the story, um, and that they could then interact directly with members of the public within this kind of 18 to 45, 50-ish age group. Um, I chatted to a bunch of people who run successful adult events, uh, about what we could do, and together we came up with the idea of stand-up comedy. Uh, and that's where Bright Club came from, the idea that you can transform a university academic into a stand-up comedian for one night, for eight minutes, and that they will be fine. 
Yeah, so that that was a little snippet from a conversation I had with Steve Cross about the origins of Bright Club. What do you guys think? I mean, as you know, as budding academics over there with James, as a PhD here with Irene, you know, Rachel, you're you're doing other things as well. Like, what what do you think about the origins and how it's come so far with the way that you guys have in, seen it? We we knew Steve from early days at the he trained us for free at the time but um but yeah so he was really keen to get bright club going around the around the country yeah so yeah and it was just such a great format we could just pick it up and and run with it as it was yeah irene um as someone who's about to pick it up and give it a go that that whole thing of you know you'll be okay if you give it a try what do you think uh yeah i think it's um it's interesting because in every conference i've been Whenever an academic cracks a joke, and actually when I would say dares to crack a joke, everybody's laughing, and you can see everybody loves it, but you cannot do that. You can only do that to some extent in a serious conference. So yeah. I, th I think it's something that was bound to happen, really, because everybody loves laughing. Um, so a lot of Bright Clubbers who've given this a go for their first try have actually gone on to continue doing stand-up. So, I mean, it's not one of those things that you have to keep doing once you've given it a try, but I think there's a bit of a bug that gets you when you do give it a try. So here's Steve Cross on how he ended up becoming a stand-up after running Bright Club. These days, uh, I actually do more stand-up comedy than anything else. So I, I am professionally a stand-up comedian and somebody who helps to make experts funny in loads of different areas. So I do training with scientists and engineers and lawyers and sustainability experts and all sorts of types. Uh, and that's what I do when I'm not welcome engagement following. But back when Brighton started, I'd never done stand-up. Um, and we brought in uh, external people to train our acts. We worked with professional comedians, but it, it was only a year into running Bright Club that I actually stood on stage for the first time and told some jokes. And the reason was that some researchers were starting to say to me, Steve, Bright Club sounds really scary. Uh, have you done it? And I would go, well, no, because if I did it, that would be a slot taken away from an academic who really needs it. And they would go, well, if it's too frightening for you, it's too frightening for me. So I had to do it. So now we're bringing it back to Leeds, and we're planning to do it this December. Isn't that right, Rachel? Yep, yep. That's on the 7th of December at the Fenton. Um, so here's a little bit about uh, how different cities bring a different flavor for Bright Club. Bright Club's different in every city because it's partly due to the personality of the people who run it. It's partly due to the personality of the city that it's in. So there was a Bright Club in Bristol for a long time. It's, it's in hiatus at the moment. And because Bristol is a very kind of organic, green, slightly hippie city, their Bright Club was a little bit like that as well. And it was really nice. And you knew you were in Bristol the minute that it started. Whereas the London one has always been quite London. So it's a bit hectic and loud and very, very busy. So what do you guys think Bright Club Leeds would be like? I mean, Rachel, it's been a while since the last Bright Club and you were involved with um, bringing Bright Club to Leeds. Yeah, uh, so I think for Leeds, it's there's a strong element of um, the the academics really because it's I mean Leeds University is such a kind of august institution, um, but yeah, you know it really helps to to break down that perception of the research here to to not undermine the quality of the research, but to help it to help people in the city of Leeds to understand it. Yeah, um, and I think 
something that we have to put across is that, you know, as a potential like academic post-grad student who's who might be interested in giving this a try, we don't just give you a mic and then shove you onto the stage. So you actually get a little bit of training and that's that's a really important part of Bright Club. I just like the idea that this is a, a thing that people can pick up and run with. And you know, you can run in whatever direction you want and if you stumble there are people to help you, but if you want to stumble and just stop, you can stumble and just stop. You know, it's a it's a meaningful thing but it's got to be a fun thing first and foremost. So yeah, Rachel, can you tell us a little bit about the original flavor of Bright Club? How was it when it first started out? Uh, well, it was, um, we did kind of patch it together a little bit. So we, we didn't, well, the reason it stopped um, was because we, we struggled for researchers to talk. So, I mean, when you said about my talk, mine was about homebrew, not particularly uh, research bit. Homebrew? <laughs> yeah. Well, now you can get degrees in making beer and wine, so... Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you were ahead of your time. Specialist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, and then we had um, somebody else who, who wasn't technically an academic, but she she had um, she was a post uh, she'd had a PhD, so uh, she gave a she gave a bright club talk on door furniture that was much funnier than anyone could have expected. It can so bright club can really like the sets can be about literally anything anything yeah so for example with Manisha's set earlier it was about a breakup song that turned into something about how memory works for us um do you have any ideas of what you'd like to talk about Irene yeah I have a I have a a lead already I haven't written everything yet but um as I said because chemistry is something most people don't really know about when you go into details I want to focus on not so much on what I'm doing, but on how people see it and understand it and how I have to explain to them and how confused everything becomes at the end. Yeah, fair enough. Everyone feels like that sometimes, especially when you're sat on the other end in the lecture hall and your professor is just going on and on about something they're so excited about, but can't quite translate for the rest of the people. Um, so yeah, why don't you, Rachel, tell us a little bit about when the next Bright Club's going to be, training sessions, that sort of thing. Okay, so we've got training the week after next on the 17th of November, um, 6 to 8pm, a place called Phoenix Health and Wellbeing. Mm-hmm. And uh, where can people um, email if they're interested? Uh, so they can email brightclubleads at gmail.com or if you just search Bright Club Leads on, on Google, you'll find our Facebook page, the WordPress, the Twitter account. Yep. Um, and when is the big day going to be? 7th of December, the Fenton, 7pm. It's £3 entry, no advance ticket sales, so get there early. Yep, so we're hoping to see a lot of faces out there. And my name's Kalamani and I do inorganic geochemistry, but I am in fact organic. And um, more specifically, I do it on um, rocks. I look at metal concentrations, um, things like uranium, um, vanadium, and my personal favourite, molybdenum. <laughs> and I, I use the elements to look for clues of what the environment was like when the rock was deposited. And because I use chemistry to look for clues, I like to liken myself to Abby up of NCIS. Uh, the comparison's a little bit ill-founded, really. Um, uh, and you give Abby up of NCIS a tiny um, fragment of rubber from a skid mark on a road, um, and two hours later she'll tell you not only the, the brand of the tyre, the car it's likely to be um, attached to, 
um, when the skid mark was made, but probably what the guy had for dinner who was driving it, um, and give me a sample uh, in two weeks. And I could tell you, more or less, with quite large error bars, whether or not that, that rock was deposited un under a, an oxic water column or a water column without any oxygen. <laughs> and, I'm not going um, to beat myself up about it though because I think the comparison a little bit too much but um, um, Abby has got some advantages over me um, her samples are, are really pristine collected by a professional put in a little Ziploc bag and sent straight to the laboratory and my sample took bloody months for them to arrive and the rocks themselves have been buried to thousands of metres depth and they've been really hot and then they've been thrust up into a mountain belt where they've been exposed to oxygen and water for hundreds of years. So the ge original geochemical signal is really confusing, it's um, proper perplexing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also she's got much um, better kit than I've got. The, the fanciest thing I've, I use is an atomic absorption spectrometer. Thank <laughs> you, it is really cool actually. <laughs> the, the computer they hooked up to though is a little old and um, you have to desperately write down the results really quickly before they go off the top of the screen <laughs> or your text floppy disk. <laughs> um, oh, so she's, she's quite a lot sassier than I am. I, I think I might have even been chosen for my distinct lack of sassiness. Um, you don't want too many sexy sassy ladies in the laboratory just in case they distract all my male students. <laughs> <laughs> but the main difference between us is that um, Abby from NCIS, her samples are a few hours, maybe a few days old, whereas my rocks are 65 million years old. Yeah, I can see you getting excited. My rocks <laughs> are from the coolest period of geological history in the Cretaceous. Some of my favourite diners from Jurassic Park are actually from. <laughs> and, and, and why would you want to know about the environment in the Cretaceous? Well, there were great big volcanoes spewing millions of tonnes of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere during the Cretaceous, and it really screwed up with the climate, it varied like, massively. And it's a really good analogue for how top the world is going to be if we continue to burn fossil fuels at the rate we're doing now. <laughs> um, but don't, don't worry, I'm not here to lecture about global warming. We all feel guilty about our carbon uh, footprint, and I, I feel really guilty about my carbon footprint. I felt guilty about driving on those short journeys, so I sold my car and I cycle everywhere now. Uh, I don't know if you can see my wonderful helmet hair, um, which I wear with, with pride and maybe a little bit too much self-righteousness, but um, <laughs> I, I felt really guilty about um, the carbon footprint of my diet as well. Um, um, you know, all that thing with the, carbon, the, the cows and the methane from the farts and all that. But, um, I, I'm not really sure if I've lowered my methane emissions because I'm a vegetarian, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorted out. Um, <laughs> um, I, I even feel guilty about having sex. There's the, the, the chance that I could spawn a child, and, and that little thing was probably going to have a carbon footprint three times mine in my lifetime. <laughs> if I use contraception, um, it makes fish infertile if I take the pill. And then there's vast tracts of Amazon rainforest that are being cleared for rubber plantations. Uh, and no, I'm, not here. <laughs> I'm not here to make you feel guilty about um, global warming. In fact, I'm here to tell you some of the, the improvements that the, the world will go through if it, it does, in fact, turn out to be a lot like the Cretaceous due to global warming. Uh, number one, um, during the Cretaceous, sea, level were, sea levels were a lot higher than they are today. In fact, um, at the, the peak, they were 200 metres higher than they are today. We 
this is quite phenomenal, really. Uh, pretty apocalyptic. <laughs> what? There's some, some good points to bring out of this. Um, during the Cretaceous, there was a vast inland sea which covered most of the um, United States of America, from the Gulf of Mexico all the way up to the Arctic Ocean. Mm. <laughs> 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 I'd just like to imagine the, the millions of Americans that illegally crossing over the border into Mexico. But <laughs> 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 well, every Mexican home has got its, uh, its um, cook from um, Chicago and its cleaner from Connecticut. <laughs> and neither of them can speak any Spanish. Number <laughs> 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 two, more, more equable climate. Um, in the Cretaceous, the whole world was a lot hotter. But the difference between the equator and the high altitudes um, was much diminished. Um, uh, so it'll be wonders for the British um, tourism economy. It's actually warm when you go to the seaside, it'll be lovely. Um, and number three, probably because of this equitable climate, uh, during the Cretaceous, the ocean circulation uh, broke down completely and um, there were periods where the Atlantic Ocean was a vast, fetid pool of stagnant water um, and below a few metres it was completely devoid of life. And at the bottom was um, uh, great thicknesses of carbon, carbon-rich, sulfurous ooze. That's fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> I have to know a lot about this um, carbon-rich ooze because it eventually turned into rocks, which are a lot like mine. The ones I'm studying at the moment, and I know for a fact that it's really rich in clay, in trace metals and nutrients, um, and it's not dissimilar to the Dead Sea mud, which we pay a fortune for at luxurious spas. Um, so, so in the future. Good skin will not be a, a privilege of the rich. Everybody from pauper to prince will have beautiful paws. <laughs> and it's in this organic rich mud that the earth, um, the earth can really um, put its hope um, because it's a really big carbon sink and eventually it will bring down the carbon dioxide levels and it might actually get a bit chilly. Um, unfortunately, it'll probably take a few hundred thousand years in human civilization, so you know it probably will no longer exist. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, <-ho. laughs> um, and, um, uh, um, I want to leave you with one final uh, image, which makes me feel warm inside as a geochemist. Okay, I, I really, I've had lots of sleepless nights looking at my my rocks. The, the chemistry's all over the place, and it's really, it's really difficult to pick out um, what the environment really was like. And I like to imagine the geochemists of the future. Uh, be they inorganic robots or organic aliens, um, and they'll be looking at the few centimetres of mud rock which will represent life on this earth for the few thousand years that we've known it. Um, and they are not going to know where to start with the crazy weed rock on the world. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, and keep driving! <laughs> Ooh, I missed a little edit there, but how, what did you guys think? Yeah, I can really relate to the uh, climate guilt. <laughs> it's easy to like overwhelm me sometimes. It is when, especially when you know a little too much about the the depths of science that's going on all around us. So that was Carol Mahoney, a postgrad researcher at Newcastle University, performing at Newcastle's famed The Stand Comedy Club. Um, what did you two think, James? Yeah, I thought it was actually quite informing that that talk. Yeah. So learn a lot as well as enjoying the comedy. What about you, Irene? Uh, yeah. Yes, I was going to say the same exactly. Is she, I think she managed to to reach the the goal of uh, actually passing the method, message across, but actually be funny in the same time. So, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of her angle. So you know, as 
stand-up comedians, storytellers. There's there's a lot of storytelling involved in um, what Bright Club does. And it's kind of nice because it's a different kind of science communication. It, it does root you, you know, you, you go through the process of whatever that researcher was talking about, um, whatever their research is. As a listener, you're walking with it, um, walking with them through that whole process and kind of giving you an insight into their mind. Isn't that what you think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's really, it's really uh, informative um, about how they, about how research happens, you know, so mm -hmm. not just the topic. I think somebody talking about something they're passionate about makes it interesting anyway. Yeah. Um, but if they can get it across so that, you know, you're kind of walking with them then yeah it's uh so I, I wanted to ask you all about um i guess your experiences with science communication in general um the difference between how you are taught you know chemistry for example which is your backgrounds like the difference between that and how you know you have to go through the research process what do you like there's a huge kind of gap in the way that it's kind of communicated versus how you actually live it don't you think yeah, definitely, because, I mean, you present your research in either, like, a paper or if the paper gets well-known in, like, a news article, and that's, like, a very polished final version of what you've done, and it doesn't relate the whole struggle and will it work, will it not work, oh, God, it's not working, what is going wrong, etc., um, that you go through whilst doing research. You just get, an, or people reading it just get a nice final polished version, so... Bright Club is a good way of showing all those struggles that you go through in like a funny, funny way. Yeah. So for academic comedy, it can really cover anything and it gives you know the public or even your family a better idea of what goes on in you, in your mind as a researcher. So from personal musings about your own work to struggles, like you said, James, um, about conducting field research to, well, conversations with people about the Bible. So here is Adam Julian's di discussing what research was like with his master's in biblical interpretation. Hey folks, how are you doing? You okay? Yes. yes! Excellent. I'm from Bridgeton in the east end of Glasgow. Woo! Thank you. <laughs> um, but you might notice from my uh, accent, although I'm from Bridgeton, I'm not exactly from Bridgeton in the east end of Glasgow. It's very interesting being English and coming from Bridgeton in the East End of Glasgow. <laughs> Can't go to a pub because people think I'm a policeman. <laughs> or a priest. <laughs> Doing a service to the local community by taking confessions in the corner of the pub. And then taking them off to prison. <laughs> yes. Uh, I've been in Bridgeton for about the last 15 or 20 years. I've got a little Jack Russell. Uh, take him for a walk in the park every day. Uh, have you guys seen the film or know the film called The Angel Share? Yeah. Yes, a few of you. Um, uh, local guy uh, is the, the, the main actor there, Paul, called Paul, Paul Brannigan. So I went to, to see the film, I was quite excited to see it. Uh, spoke to a, a fellow dog walker about seeing The Angel Share, and he said, Oh, that's got Paul, Paul Brannigan in it, yeah, hasn't it? Uh, I said, Yes. And he said, Oh, he stabbed me once. <laughs> but it's nice to see he's doing all right. <laughs> Forgiveness, Britain style. Uh, anyway, I, I, I graduated recently with a master's. 
the, the Canaanite woman gets eaten by by dogs. <laughs> K nine. <laughs> anyway, I spend a lot of time on my own. Yes, yes, I research on my own, on my own. So I'm absolutely delighted when the Chalmers witnesses come. We get to talk about the orgy or something. Come on. Now, uh, you may or may not know the uh, uh, difference between radical Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe Jesus was the Son of God, but not God. Uh, regular Christians believe Jesus was the Son of God and God. That all goes back to AD 325, the Council of Nicaea. Santa Claus. Used to, people used to leave their shoes out. Uh, uh, St. Nicholas used to leave their shoes out. People would put money in the shoes secretly. And uh, he was then known as Santa Claus later on. Anyway, he believed that Jesus was the same as God. And this other chap, Arius, believed that he wasn't. And uh, the council had Nicaea in AD 325, they had a fight. And Santa, Santa Claus punched Arius. And, and, um, <laughs> and sometimes in churches you'll see the Nicene Creed being read out. It talks about Jesus being of the same substance of God. Now... Uh, in the Greek, there's two words, one meaning of same substance and one of similar substance. One is homoousis, and the other is homoousis. The difference between the two words is the Greek letter I, iota, where the phrase it doesn't make one iota of a difference comes from. <laughs> because ironically, it's a huge difference as to whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. Yeah, so I was having a, having, a, having a nice chat about this with the the lovely um, Jehovah's Witnesses lady, and, and then I'm going to talk about perichoresis, interpenetration! <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so and she thanked me very much for the conversation. <laughs> but funnily enough, I haven't heard much of her since. <laughs> so hopefully that's given you a few ideas of what to say to Jehovah's Witnesses. So thank you, you've been a lovely audience. I hope you enjoy the rest of the evening. I've been Adam, cheers. <laughs> That was Adam Julians from a theologian from Glasgow. So, what did you guys think of that one? Have you ever heard a theologian speak that way? <laughs> no, not like this. No, not like but that. I, I really like how he interacts with the audience and make them interact how he wants. Yeah, that, that's quite well done. Yeah, I was gonna say it was kind of like a, had a like almost a pantomime feel mm -hmm. when he was getting them to boo. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Rachel, so why don't we talk a little bit about um, Bright Club Leeds and what's going on, what's next? Uh, yeah, so we're, we're still looking for people to perform. Uh, I think we've got everybody, well, we have enough people to cover the December show, but I mean, we're always looking for new presenters, so anyone is welcome to come along to the training. There, there are some spaces left, so... The training is on November... 17th? November 17th, um, just next to the town hall. So um, it's ticket only, so you have to go on Eventbrite. But I'll be linking the um, to the Eventbrite event on our Facebook page, and I'll tweet it all afterwards. Um, so yeah, yeah. So we'll be keeping an eye out for that. Um, make sure to keep an eye out on our Twitter at this is LSR on Bright Club's Twitter at Bright Club Leads. Yep, um, a lot more things coming up. So for this next bit, before we finish the show, just a little bit of a song. So, yeah, bright clubs in different cities are completely different. Um, 
Rachel, were you at the Manchester one recently? Uh, well, a few years ago, I went to the Manchester one. It included so it included the researchers talking. Um, I remember well the talk that sticks in my mind was about fractals, but they they had a performance artist on as well as musicians. Yeah. So it was really, and it's in a kind of art cafe. Okay. So there is a strong kind of art element to it. Yeah. So I'm coming from the Bright Club in Edinburgh, and it's set in an actual stand-up. Um, comedy club so that was really interesting and um, normally we would usually if we don't have we didn't have enough like academic performers we leave the last uh, 30 minutes to a professional comedian who just takes the stage and keeps everyone laughing so what did you guys have planned for Bright Club Leeds this time? Um, I think we were looking at having some sort of live music there this time Uh, so yeah just something a little bit different and it will keep everybody entertained. Cool. That sounds great. Well, keep your eyes peeled for more information about Bright Club Leeds, which is coming back on December 7th at the Fenton. And yeah, that's the end of the show. Remember, spread the word of academic stand-ups to students and researchers you know. Please share them. We need more people to join us. Um, It's going to be pretty fantastic. Um, And... We're looking for more performers for our December 7th return to Leeds, live at the Fenton, just down the road. And you know what? If you're if you're curious about it, just come to the training on November 17th. We'll post more information on that. Um, we've got Think Tank coming up next on LSR, so stay tuned for that. Uh, Rachel, Irene, James, thank you for joining me in the studio. Thank you all for listening. This has been Bright Club Radio Hour on Leeds Student Radio. Tweet us at This Is LSR. 